Welcome to Demand Does the Six Questions, where the same six questions can tell a unique story. I am your host, Demand, father of two, husband of one, and leader of this here Demodcast. And my next guest is from Columbus, Ohio. He is the co-author of All Jokes Aside, Stand-Up Comedy is a Funny Business. This journalist and filmmaker is the producer of the documentary Lady Wrestler, the amazing untold story of African-American women in the ring. I bring to you Chris Borders. Hey, Devon, I love that intro. I feel like I should be in the ring with my above my head right now when the spotlight's shining down on me right <laughs> <laughs> i like doing it because i want everybody who comes on this show to feel like a big deal oh yeah that's awesome so so i was like if, if you don't feel like a big deal anywhere else you're a big deal right now that's awesome i appreciate that every everybody's a star as the song goes right thank you for taking time out to talk to a perfect stranger appreciate it yeah, thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Because anything I can do to get this the word out about these amazing women's story, I am perfectly willing to do. So I really appreciate it. Oh, all right. So are you ready to answer the six questions? Absolutely. Hit me with them. Question number one. When did you know you wanted to become a filmmaker? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting because, you know, and this sounds kind of grandiose, like, oh, I was born to do this, but I, I, ne- I was never not a storyteller. I'm the oldest of five siblings. Before my mom married my stepfather, when I was five, I spent a lot of time over my maternal grandparents. In fact, my whole childhood, I, growing up, I spent a lot of time over my grandparents. They were like my second mom and dad. They were kind of ahead of their time because I grew up in the 70s and 80s. They were kind of ahead of their time. They had cable TV really before it was widespread. So I would spend countless hours, they called it the rec room, in their rec room, the lower level of their split-level house, North Columbus, watching TV. When I wasn't watching TV, I was just kind of playing in the backyard or wandering around the neighborhood, this middle-class black neighborhood in Columbus called the uh, Somerset, just making up imaginary people and storylines to entertain myself. So I was always from a very young age making up stories and watching stories on TV. And back when I was growing up, HBO and the movie channel and Showtime were really movie channels. It wasn't this, you know, Game of Thrones and all these different TV series that they created because people can watch movies anywhere. You don't have to wait till it comes on cable now. But when I was growing up, you really had to wait a year before a movie left the movie theaters and then it would come on HBO or the movie channel or Showtime. So that's where I saw a lot of movies and that's where I got the storytelling bug. And what I would do is I would make up these imaginary storylines in my head about anything. About I'd make up like famous actors or singers that didn't exist. Or like I'd make up these imaginary families and I would draw pictures of them almost like storyboards. And then when I wasn't drawing pictures, I would like write out stories of them. And I would, I, I would say I started doing that around probably elementary school, like six or seven. It, there wasn't like one, one moment where I woke up one day and said, oh, I think I want to be a writer. Oh, I think I want to be a filmmaker. It was always in my head that, oh, one day I'm going to tell stories like the ones I see on cable TV. 
I went to a Catholic elementary school. I think my teachers kind of saw that I had this vivid imagination because they nominated me to go to this conference called the Young Authors Conference, where they kind of like groom young young authors. So from a young age, I, my mom and my teachers and my grandparents kind of saw that I had this interest in storytelling. And I never was one of those people that I thought, okay, I have to pick a lane. I have to be a writer or a director. Not a lot of people know that there are a lot of, I call, I call it multimedia creatives or multi-hyphenate. That's, that's another term for it. There's a lot of people who jump from genre to genre. Like I grew up idolizing like Quincy Jones, you know, who's of course a, a very accomplished musician, but he also produced The Color Purple and was a magazine publisher at one time with Vibe. And Debbie Allen, who, you know, started out as an actress and a dancer and choreographer, then became a director. You know, she directed A Different World and produced Amistad, you know, the, the movie about the slave rebellion. And, and you know, I'm a, I'm a huge, huge, huge Prince fan. And Prince was, of course, not just a virtuoso musician, but he directed three of the four movies he was in. Not, I don't think many people realize that. The only movie he didn't direct was Purple Rain. I grew up idolizing these people who would jump from genre to genre. And I just always thought I'd be like that. Like I'd write a play, then I'd write a novel, then I'd direct a movie. So it was, that was in my mind from a very young age. So there wasn't like any one moment. Okay. Uh, did you act, did you teach yourself how to do film? Yeah, I'm more or less, I'm self-taught. Like I didn't go to film school. I have a bachelor's degree in English from Ohio State University. But I took some film studies courses when I was getting my degree. So it's not I'm not like a total novice when it comes to the, the formal study of filmmaking. So I went to a Catholic elementary school up through eighth grade. Then I went to public school for high school. The public school system in Columbus, they have what's called career centers where you spend in your junior and senior year, if you get accepted, you spend half of your day in regular school and then the second half of your day at the career center. So I got accepted into the radio and television broadcasting program at Fort Hayes Career Center. That's where they teach you writing and directing and being on camera. And we actually, that was back when you actually had to like cut and splice tape. So we learned how to like edit radio interviews and edit TV interviews, actually using razor blades to cut tape. And we had to do projects sort of like you would do in film school where you had to come up with a final project for the year. Both my junior and senior year, I did like a, I called it the variety show where it was like a sort of like this was like I was kind of inspired by In Living Color where I did like comedy sketches and little short films and little vignettes. So that was sort of like film school, but really informal. A lot of the learning I've done in my adult life about filmmaking has come from just reading books and YouTube tutorials. I was really inspired by Robert Rodriguez's book, Rebel Without a Crew, about how he made El Mariachi with just himself, a uh, tape recorder and a like secondhand film camera. So I, a lot of my technique or lack of lack thereof has, has just been through watching movies. Yeah. Teaching myself basically. Part of it is because one of my classmates at Fort Hayes, Paul Hill, he went to film school at Wright State and he's now the um, full-time editor at the Wexner Center for the Arts at Ohio State, where I did the post-production for the Lady Wrestler documentary. And there was a time like in my late twenties, early thirties, where I was considering going to film school. And Paul was like, you know what, you can learn filmmaking by just making films and doing short films. He was like, I know so many people that I went to school with that are in thousands, if not tens of thousands of student loan debt, that they're never going to be Steven Spielberg. And they could have saved so much money by just going the self-taught route. So 
I just kind of took his advice and thought, okay, I'll just, I'll just kind of teach myself. Saved yourself a truckload of money. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Question number two. What do you wish you had known when you first started out? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And I think because I was a child of uh, the media, meaning I really, really like, uh, I mean, TV was my babysitter when I was a kid. I really, really took in the messages. Uh, I mean, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous was actually on the air when I was growing up. So I really, really took in the the whole capitalist message that the only way to be successful in America is to be a millionaire by the age of 30. I thought my path in life was going to be that at, you know, as soon as I graduated from college or before then, that I would write like a best-selling novel. It would, you know, I would get paid a million dollar advance. I would leave Columbus, move to New York. I would have homes in New York, Los Angeles, and Paris because I, I really like Paris and French culture a lot. And I would commute back and forth between New York, L.A., and Paris, making movies like Spike Lee, you know, one, cranking out a movie once a year and cranking out a book once a year. And You know what? Maybe this year I'll do a Broadway play. So I'll be like August Wilson. I'll have my senses play on Broadway this year. I really thought that was going to be my life. And then reality <laughs> slapped me in the face and made me realize that, no, a lot of working writers and even a lot of working filmmakers, you kind of have to do different projects. And sometimes you'll have success and then sometimes you'll have lean days. And I wish I would have known starting out that there's a lot of people who are very accomplished writers and very accomplished directors, they don't ever make it to the level of being a household name like Spike Lee or Tyler Perry or Steven Spielberg or Stephen King, but they're working writers and they're working filmmakers. I actually just listened to an interview with author Cheryl Strayed. She wrote a book called Wild that was turned into a movie and it was picked by Oprah for Oprah's book club. And Cheryl Strayed was really candid in this interview where she said, up until it became a really huge bestseller, she was like, my husband and I were in like tons of credit card debt. She said, friends are seeing me, oh, your book's on the New York Times bestseller. We're going out to dinner and they expect me to pick up the check when my credit cards are, are maxed out. And not a lot of people realize that there's working class creative people, just like there's working class, you know, name any other profession. So I wish I would have known that starting out and not had this very naive, starry-eyed, view of the entertainment industry. If you haven't sold millions and millions of books or you haven't made a million dollars by the time you're 30, that you're a failure and you should just hang it up. Because that's really the, the mindset I have. And even now, you know, we all do that where we compare ourselves to other people where I see someone like Kenya Barris or um, Ava DuVernay and, you know, they're raking or Shonda Rhimes and they're, they're raking in all these multi, multi, multi-million dollar deals on Netflix or whatever. And I'm like, wow, well, here I am sitting up in Columbus, Ohio. But, you know, I feel like we all have a voice and we all have a story to tell. Something Yama Van Zandt says that I think is just absolutely true is comparing yourself to others is an act of violence on yourself. And that's something that I've really had to come to realize as an adult is that don't compare yourself to other people and don't look at that very, very unrealistic, you know, get rich or die trying viewpoint of success. It's just, it's just false and it's not reality for most people. Question number three. What is your go-to order at your favorite hometown restaurant? 
Well, yeah, interesting you asked that because so last summer, summer of 2019 before COVID hit, I actually filmed my second movie, which I'm in the process of editing and doing post-production on called Things Are Tough All Over. And it's really weird because it was like really eerily predictive of what we're going through now. But of course, I didn't have a crystal ball. It's about a black family struggling through the Great Recession of 2008. They both lose their jobs. They have to homeschool their kids and they're home all day driving each other crazy, as a lot of people are uh, (laughs) these days because of COVID. So I bring that up to say that while we were filming the movie, I got into really bad habits. I'm normally fairly health conscious. Like I try to work out most days and watch what I eat. But when you're working a day job, like I'm still working as a journalist and I'm still trying to do my creative thing on the side. So when you're trying to make a movie, basically like on the weekends, I was running around, you know, not exercising the way I usually do, just eating junk food because that's the quickest, easiest thing to feed the cast and cheapest thing to feed the cast and crew. So I actually put on 10 pounds. That was really, really hard for me to get off. My normal weight is like like around 190, like between 195 and 200. I'm, I'm 6'2". And so I had, I carried these extra, t- it was like my weight was between 205 and 210 after I finished this movie. And nothing I did, no kind of dieting I did would get this weight down. So this summer, this past summer, summer of 2020, I decided I just have to change the way I eat. I have to start exercising more and I have to change the way I eat. So now basically what I eat is salads with some kind of protein. So my go-to meal is a Greek salad at this at a local restaurant called King Euro. I like Greek salads because it feels decadent, like it's a lot of food. It's a you know, it's a lot of lettuce, it's a lot of like tomatoes, onions, olives, and you know, that really good dressing. So it feels decadent, but it's still basically healthy. So that's that's my go to food. How did you discover the place where you got it? You know, I think I was just driving by it one day. Oh, actually, you know what? I take that back. A friend of mine that I, a friend of mine named Tara that we started out with at a, a local black newspaper called the Call and Post. We were catching up one day, and she recommended, "Oh, let's meet up at King Euro." I think I just discovered their Greek salad just by looking at their menu. So when so this past summer when I started on this weight loss journey, I was like, "Oh, I should just go to King Euro and get a, a, a salad to go." So I think that's how I discovered it was through my friend Tara. Question number four. What are you curious about? Yeah, you know what I'm curious about is other cultures. Allegedly, I haven't haven't done the genealogy. My family has French Creole heritage, which is where my last name comes from, allegedly. I I say allegedly because I haven't done the genealogy because, you know, a lot of black families will say, oh, my great-grandmother was Cherokee and my great aunt was Mexican. They have no more proof than, <laughs> you know, than, uh, no, than you or I have. But so I, so I've always been interested in, in French culture. And then for some reason, I cannot tell you why I've always been interested in learning Spanish. And it's like, I started taking Spanish in high school. And for some reason, it just like awoke in this passion in me. Like I remember La Bamba, that was one of the movies that I used to watch all the time on cable TV you know, the story of Richie Valens. I remember that movie came on cable and I went through the house running my house. La Bamba's on, La Bamba's on. And my grandfather was like, boy, why are you running around? And I don't know why, but just something about the language and the culture just really appeals to me. So I'm, I'm in the process of learning Spanish. And then um, I really like traveling. Like I got to go to Africa for the first time over the holiday season of 2019 
got to go to Senegal and Gambia with a local African dance group called Chassan. They go like once a year. So I, that, that was an awesome experience. And we're, we're actually making a documentary about that. And one thing I've discovered recently since travel is not really a big, is not really an option right now with COVID is just like, I'll just turn on YouTube and just pick a random country. Like since I'm learning Spanish, like one day I'll be like, well, let me learn all about Argentina. So I'll pull up travel videos about Buenos Aires or different other different cities in Latin America, or I'll start watching like France 24 English, which, which is basically like a European CNN. And one thing I think Americans are spoiled by is we really don't get a lot of international news, especially these past four years where everything is, the focus has been on how divided the country is. That's all we hear day in, day out is politics, politics, politics in America. We really don't hear about what's going on unless there's some, you know, huge natural disaster or explosion or something. So just checking out other other news channels that tell you about other countries, like what's going on in Africa, what's going on in Belize. I didn't even know what Belize was. I didn't know that was a Latin American country where a lot of black people, you know, a lot of Caribbean black people are from. You just discover so much about other people. You discover things that are different. And as much as it's a cliche, you also discover things that are similar. Like there's people protesting lockdowns in, in France, just like they are here. They're not doing it with guns and, you know, MAGA hats, but there's restaurant owners and even musicians that are protesting when France decided to go in lockdown again. It's just like, you think we're in a bubble here? Like everything we're going through in, in America is, oh, this is all exclusive to America. And it's not when you look at international news. So I would really recommend people just, even if you just Google, like every now and then, just Google a news article about, you know, just Google international news and see what's going on in other places. It's, it's really eye-opening. That could help keep things in perspective as well. People think, oh, we're the only ones dealing with COVID. Everybody else has it figured out. No, Britain's about to go into lockdown again. It's, our, a lot of our problems are, are the same the, the world over. They may be more intense in other places, but, you know, a lot of other countries, you know, deal with a lot of the same things that we're dealing dealing with. Question number five. Is there anything I should have asked but didn't? Yeah, I think I would just, I think I would just kind of like to emphasize more. And I don't know if I'm the first person that came up with this term, but I was thinking of a way to describe myself to people because people, I think sometimes people get confused. Like, okay, you say you're working on a novel. Like I'm currently working on a, a novel called The Chloe Chronicles about a, a mixed race girl whose mother's black and father's French. And she becomes like a famous actress and model. But, oh, but you're doing the Lady Wrestler documentary. And, oh, you wrote a nonfiction book with Raymond Lambert about his comedy club. People are, because people naturally want to put you in a lane. So I came up with the term multimedia creative. Like I said, maybe that term's been out there for a while. And I, I just kind of, you know, came across it somewhere. I think too many people think, the way to be successful is to pick a lane and stick to it. And there's so many people like the people I was mentioning before, Quincy Jones, Prince, even Oprah, Oprah's a magazine publisher. She's a talk show host. She's an actress. She's a network studio executive. Now, Tyler Perry, he's a playwright, but he's also an actor. And also he's, he's written books. So I think people just need to get it out of their head that you just have to pick one thing and stick to it. I think what you have to learn to do is effectively multitask. Like I always say, you don't tell somebody who works in an office, you can either type or talk on the phone. You can't do both of them. You have to learn how to do both because they're both part of your job. So you don't go ride a bicycle and try to juggle it at the same time. You ride a bike and you might 
you know, listen to music quietly so you can still hear traffic going by, but that's multitasking. So I think what people like me who have more than one interest is you need to learn to effectively multitask. I actually heard a writer yesterday during the, um, they're having this virtual American film market summit, uh, that's, that takes place every year. And this African American writer, I don't remember his name off the top of my head, but he said, he always tries to keep more than one project going at, at one time because if one thing falls through, he always has something else to fall back on. And that keeps his creativity flowing because he feels like different parts of his brain are stimulated by the different things he does. And he's like, he's a screenwriter, but he also writes texts for comic books. I, I just think there's a lot of creative people out there that are kind of scared to do more than one thing because they've been told, oh, if you do this, people will look at you at like, like you don't have enough focus or you're jumping from one thing to another and you don't know what you're doing, which is, it's just not true. People are multifaceted and I think you shouldn't be afraid to be multifaceted and to show all the things that you're interested in and pursue all of them. Thank you again. I needed yeah, that as well. You. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's therapy with Chris Barnet. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I do uh, charge by the hour, so. <laughs> all right, I, I got the time running, so. <laughs> <laughs> the reason I like asking the uh, the fifth question because uh, I it, it it taught me to prepare better because somebody actually said no, actually there's nothing you could have asked. It was great. I was like, oh no, um, so I now <laughs> yeah. come over prepared. And what I wanted to ask you about is Lady Wrestler. It was a chance conversation with one of your colleagues that brought this about. Like, how did yeah, this? Yeah, yeah. So back in 2005, I was working full time at This Week News, which I actually still freelance for, which is a local community newspaper here in Columbus. So there was a an African American man named Terry Anderson who worked at a an arts council called the Greater Columbus Arts Council that like gives funding to different arts programs. So I would call Terry periodically and ask him for story ideas, and Terry kept telling me, he said, there's this really interesting lady that I grew up with in my neighborhood who was some kind of wrestler or bodybuilder, and you should interview her sometime. So it kind of took me a long time to get around to it, not because I didn't think it was interesting, just I had a, you know, a lot of different things going on. So finally, Terry set up an interview with me and this woman at the end of December. It was December 2005, and that turned out to be Ethel Johnson, who was one of the most famous African-American wrestlers in history back in the 1950s and 60s and, you know, was raised in Columbus, spent her whole adult life in Columbus, would travel all over the world, but always came home to Columbus and raised her family in Columbus. So I sat down and interviewed her for um, the Columbus Dispatch, which owns This Week News. And she just had all these amazing stories of going all over the world, like going to Latin America. And she had a stage name in Latin America, Rita Valdez. And she talked about going to Cuba and she was, you know, she was kind of a dark-skinned woman. She talked about how the, she saw the colorism down there, about how light-skinned people were put in positions of power and darker-skinned people would be working at the hotels and as maids and janitors. And she said, people think, oh, racism is exclusive to the American South. And she said, no, traveling all, all over the world, I saw that it's everywhere. And then she talked about how she would go some places in the United States and it was like she was treated like a superstar, but in the South, you know, back during Jim Crow segregation, when she, when she was famous, she, it didn't matter how famous she was. She would still have to go in the back door of a restaurant or stay at, you know, Miss So-and-So's house because you can't stay at the hotel in town because they don't let black people stay there. 
or maybe they would let you sit in the restaurant, but they'd seat you, at, you know, near the kitchen where you're smelling the trash and seeing, you know, the, the kitchen door swinging open every now and then. So you can't really enjoy your meal. So I just thought she had this really amazing story. The dispatch published it in March of 2006, you know, in time for women's history month and Arnold Schwarzenegger. I think this is one of the best kept secrets of Columbus. Arnold Schwarzenegger, started his bodybuilding career out in Columbus. He won, I think it was Mr. Universe at the tournament that was held at this auditorium called Veterans Memorial in downtown Columbus. So because he got his first big title in Columbus, he always had love for Columbus and would, would always come back. He founded a fitness festival and it started out just as a bodybuilding competition, but now it's like a called the Arnold sports festival where they have all different kinds of sports. So Arnold's people, saw the article and they called me at the paper and was like, Oh my God, this Ethel Johnson lady is amazing. We want to give her a lifetime achievement award at the, at the closing finale of the, the uh, festival this year. So I called Shelly's, I'm sorry, I called Ethel's daughter, Shelly, who I later found out had been trying to get her mother's story out to the public for years. And Terry was just kind of helping Shelly get her mother's story out. But I, I, I asked Shelly, I said, well, Arnold Schwarzenegger's people just called me and they're really excited and want to honor your mother. And I could just tell by the sound of Shelly's voice that it wasn't, <laughs> her mother wasn't really into that. So Shelly was like, well, I'll ask mom. And then, excuse me, shortly later, Shelly got back to me and was like, she said, tell them I said thanks, but no thanks. So I'm thinking if Arnold Schwarzenegger, who is an international star, you know, whose movies have made billions of dollars, sees the value in this woman's story, there's something more to it than one newspaper article. So I had always wanted to be a filmmaker, as I said. I just thought this would make a perfect documentary. There was already a documentary about women's wrestling from that era called Lipstick and Dynamite, but they only had a very, very brief mention of the black women. They mentioned Ethel's older sister, Babs. So it was Babs, Ethel, and Marva, these three sisters who went into wrestling. And Babs was the first one to go in and then brought Ethel in and Ethel brought Marva in. And so in Lipstick and Dynamite, they only mentioned Babs real briefly. And I thought, well, if any women deserve to have their story told, it's these women. So I asked Ethel if she would be willing to be interviewed on camera. And to my surprise, she said yes, because, you know, she didn't really like the limelight. That's why she turned Arnold Schwarzenegger down. And then through the process, I came across Ramona Isbell, another wrestling legend who just still happens to live here in Columbus. And then I also interviewed Ethel Brown, a white woman who was a wrestler who was friends with Ethel and her sisters back in the day. I interviewed Hassan Jeffries, a black studies professor. He gave me a lot of good background about the place in history that these women held. And so it just, it took me years to work on it, not because it really would have taken that long if I worked on it every single day, but because I was still working as a journalist and just kind of working on it here and there when I could, it just slowly came together over the course of years. And I'm finally about to release it on streaming services on December 1st of this year. So it's finally going to be out there to the public. What was the neatest discovery or what was the biggest surprise you got doing this, uh, the research and this movie, like whether it was filming or in one of the interviews or anything like that? A couple kind of big surprises. Number one, that these women even existed. I grew up in Columbus in the black community. No one ever mentioned these women. My first couple of newspaper jobs were at African-American newspapers. There were all kinds of photo archives that I looked through, looking for different photos for different stories over the years. Never did I see any pictures of these women. Never did I hear anyone mention these women. So that was really surprising that I grew up in Columbus. Columbus used to be the hub, the, I mean, the international hub of women's wrestling back in the, actually the 30s up through the 60s. 
because there was a, a promoter, a white man named Billy Wolf, who started bringing these black women into his wrestling organization. He already had his, his, his wife, who was named Mildred Burke, and dozens of other white women. And he started, he was influenced by Jackie Robinson and thought, if I break the color barrier like Jackie Robinson did with wrestling, then people will go just to watch it as just for the sensationalism of seeing black people wrestling white people. The Washington Post did a story about Lady Wrestler, and they, the, the headline was Hidden Figures of Wrestling. That's exactly what it is. It's like the story Hidden Figures. Nobody really knew about that until the movie really took off and became a big hit. It just was amazing to me. And still, I mean, I love Columbus to death, but I sometimes still feel like it's pulling teeth to get the women these recognition that they deserve. There's a bridge on long, this street called Long Street leading to this traditional African-American community where they have engravings of like photo engravings of different African-American people who have really like put the city on the map. Like one of them was the publisher I worked for at the black newspaper named Amos Lynch. I feel like if no one else should be on that bridge, Ethel, because she was really the biggest black female wrestling star of her, her day. She should be on that bridge because she lived in that area most of her life. And I've written letters to the mayor. I've written letters to city council people. And you get, you know, a nice little, well, thank you for contacting me. But I really feel like that would have to be a full-time job campaigning to get some kind of, I don't know, statue or addition to that mural that's on that bridge. Some kind of formal recognition, a street named after Ethel and her sisters, or even just Ethel. You know, I heard somebody you know, going back to me being a Prince fan, I heard one of Prince's former employees saying like familiarity breeds contempt sometimes because she said, do you see a picture of, I mean, a statue rather of Mary Tyler Moore in downtown Minneapolis because she did the opening credits to the Mary Tyler Moore show, never lived in Minneapolis, but the show, her show was set in Minneapolis. So they've commemorated her with a statue. I don't see a statue of Prince Rogers Nelson who spent his entire adult life built an entertainment complex called Paisley Park. I don't see any statue of Prince or any street named after Prince in Minneapolis, which is a crime. These women deserve way more than this documentary. I mean, I'm, you, you can hear me getting emotional about it. And I just, I just think that's wrong. I shouldn't have to fight and claw and convince people that, you know, because part of it is people have this perception that wrestling is fake. So we're not going to really recognize something that's quote unquote fake. And they need to get off their high horse because People all over the world. I went to the Cannes Film Festival. I didn't screen the documentary there, but I went, you know, to network. And people from all over the world, when I would mention this story, they're like, oh, my God, I, I have to see this. Not because I'm so interesting, but because these women are so interesting. Familiarity does breed contempt. And I just wish in my hometown there was more recognition of these women and it wasn't such an uphill battle. Que sera, sera. And the, so the other, the other thing that really surprised me was that Men are really big fans of women's wrestling. I don't know any other women's sport where the majority of the, fan, the fans are men. And I don't think the men are fans because they're just looking at the women as sex objects because why watch wrestling? You could just go watch porn. Excuse my you know, bluntness. But nobody's going to go sit through and pay money to sit through a wrestling match just to get aroused. Men are really, really, really respectful of women wrestlers. I went to a big event called WrestleCon they had a, this big women's tournament just because I had never, believe it or not, I had never been to a wrestling match. And I was like, I should, before I release this documentary, I should go to a women's wrestling match and see what it's like. So it was just interesting to me that the men were really, really into it. They were, 
you know, yelling, rooting the women on, running up to the women after their matches and trying to get their autographs and take selfies with them. And the women that were there seemed to be the men's wives and girlfriends who, like, they had dragged along and they really weren't that interested in it. If women's football existed, if it was really popular, I can't see a stadium filled with men to watch women's football. Or, you know, I don't see the WNBA selling out arenas everywhere. I mean, it's popular, but it's not to that, you know, you have Venus and Serena, but they have a pretty, I would say, evenly split fan base between men and women. You don't, you know, at the U.S. Open or whatever, you don't see the stands completely filled with men because it's women's tennis. And that's just something that I just think is really underrated. I got to interview Rowdy Roddy Piper for the documentary, and he was just like, he said it himself. He said, women are really underrated. They're looked at as just flash. Promoters don't think that they can sell out arenas the way that men can. But he said that a lot of them are really, really, really excellent wrestlers, and they should be given more credit than they're due. So that was just really surprising to me. And, and I don't think most male wrestling fans would call themselves feminists or say that they support feminism or anything like that. They're just, for some reason, they just have this mindset that if you can wrestle and you can entertain them and give them a good wrestling match, they don't care what gender you are. As a person who's been in the business, I can concur. Those are... Okay. I was like, you got to interview... I was, while you were talking, I was like, you got to interview Roddy Roddy Piper. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Question number six. If you could create a new holiday, what would it commemorate? Yeah, I think there needs to be a voting rights day. And... It needs to be, I mean, yes, it needs to be a day off, but I, I would like to see a voting rights day because of this last election and all the confusion over voting and who gets, who has the right to vote and have been, I, I really think there should be a day that's focused on voting rights and how the, how the right to vote was won. And a lot of people are, a lot of people don't really know the history and didn't know that. I mean, I myself didn't even know that women didn't, didn't get the right the right to vote until 1920. I didn't realize it was that late in the 20th century. And I just think there needs to be, instead of just a day off where everybody goes and just has barbecues or whatever, it should be a day where, like on Martin Luther King Day here in Columbus, a lot of universities and a lot of different places have events where they talk about civil rights. And I would love to see a day where, like a, a uni, like Ohio State University has a symposium on voting rights and why we should be like other countries. Like we, we should, first of all, abolish the electoral college. That's a relic that we don't need anymore. Why we should have mandatory, if not mandatory voting, at least mandatory registration. Like as soon as you turn 18, you're automatically registered to vote. I mean, there's countries, I think it's either Australia, Australia or New Zealand where you get a ticket if you don't vote. I don't know if we need to go that far, but so many people have this mindset of, well, voting doesn't really count and nothing ever changes. And, politicians are just on both sides and that's just ignorance why people feel that way they don't you know and as much as it's a cliche that you know our, our parents and grandparents lectured us about well people died for this it's true people did die people should be educated about you know the events that happened in selma and other things that all the sacrifices people made for the right to vote because people didn't want to sit up and you know, oh, let me write in Mickey Mouse for, you know, for president because I don't like either one of them. Or, oh, let me go vote for Kanye West because I like what he has to say when he doesn't have policy the first to back anything up. There just needs to be a lot more education around voting. And I think we just have one day 
of course, not everybody's going to go participate in it. But if we had one day to just focus on voting rights, I think it would help educate a lot more people. Absolutely. And talk about, you know, the, the whole the whole gambit, you know, with voting, voting, like fighting for voting rights and voter suppression and gerrymandering and letting people know what all that stuff is. So, so people can be aware of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We just, we just need a lot more correct information, not misinformation. And people just really need to, to be educated about why voting is so important. Agreed. Here, here, sir. Here, here. All right. Uh, so where can we find you on the interwebs? How can people get in contact with you? Yeah, so my website is chrisbornay.com, chris, C-H-R-I-S, Bornay, B-O-U-R-N-E-A.com. And then Lady Wrestler's website is ladywrestlermovie.com. And the information on how to pre-order the, um, the release on December 1st is on there. And then I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook under my name if you just well, I think it might be Chris Bornet, writer, writer, like, you know, author. So if you just, but if you just Google Chris Bornet or go on Twitter or any of the other platforms and you put my name in the search, I'll, I'll come up. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. This was a great opportunity to, to really bring awareness to the, with the lady wrestler stories, especially. I really appreciate the opportunity. And thank you very much. Don't forget to rate and review the show because that allows uh, whatever the algorithms that the powers that podcasters that be make uh, allows us to be seen by more shows like ours. So if you can do that, that would be awesome. Next week, my guest is a novelist, scholar, and playwright. We talk the theater, the law, and adventure with author Andrea Harrison. So until next time, see, hear it, speak it, live.